thrilled to be here. We know others are going to be joining in here with us, uh, but while we they will uh, emerge, it's my pleasure to welcome Rabbi Svi Blanchard, who is the Meyer Struckman Professor of Jewish Law at Humboldt University in Berlin and an adjunct at Fordham Law School in New York. He holds PhDs in philosophy and clinical psychology and has taught at Washington University in St. Louis, as well as Northwestern in Loyola and Chicago. His stories and parables have been widely anthologized. And I have personally benefited as a person, as a, as a student of Rev Blanchard for many years, as was my Mashkiach uh, Ruchani uh, for, for many years. Today's topic is how stories heal, how to read and access the magic of Hasidic stories. We will have an hour here together, however Rob Blanchard wants to use that. Thank you so much for joining us. No, oh, it's my pleasure actually to be here. It's been, a, I guess it's been a long time since I was actually with you in person the last time. I remember a wonderful visit there. And it's nice just to lay eyes on, on you again, Shmuley. It's a, just a pleasure to talk to again, one of the, what I, people I consider one of the, the young and most important young leaders in American Orthodox Jewry today. So it's just a pleasure to be here under that. It's also nice to join folks from all over the world to do this. Um, I'm glad that it's being recorded so that people who didn't have a chance to get on now will have a chance to get on later um, in various ways. It's about stories and I'm, in a minute I'm gonna be telling some at least one story. So I'm for just gonna introduce and by way of introduction, uh, use a little bit of time until, uh, so the people who join us late will hear the, at least most of the story we're gonna be talking about. We're talking about um, Hasidic stories this time. And I, when, you, when, you, when you talk about a topic like how stories heal, really it's a task that I don't do by myself. We all do this together. This depends on your capacity to join into the, to the process of hearing the story, thinking about it, feeling about it. As you're listening, I'm sort of inviting you to be a partner in this process of, of allowing yourself, as you hear the story, to inside yourself, to, to access the memories that you have as you hear the story, <clears throat> access the associations that you have, insights that come to you. Let them play around. Join me in this process. <clears throat> Excuse me just a minute. So we're going to do this together and seek a kind of understanding. Uh, we don't have a lot of time, so there'd really be no time for back, back and forth if you only have an hour. But over the course of time, I think if you let things happen inside you and cook those memories, those associations, those feelings that come up as you hear this story and its discussion, you'll begin to get a picture as to what you can actually do with this material. At least that's based on my experience. We're going to do a long story together. I've included a list of, uh, AJ has it, a list of two or three story books you can start in. There are just lots of story books, but one is by Buber and another is by a collection of Shlomo, Shlomo Karlbach stories. This one is a one I'm going to do today is called The Blind Angel. And it really is a story told by Tobia, Tobia Halberstam, retold by his son. Uh, but there are many, 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 many stories. So it's a, and they're not all the same. There are very, very short little stories that have a quick punchline that are important. Um, one of my favorites, I guess, the one that influenced me a lot in my life was a story about the, the, the Kutzka Rebbe. As a student, the Kutzka Rebbe was out in the fields, sort of riding in his carriage with his own Rebbe. They used to go out to commune with nature and think about things. And the two of them were out there. And of course, where they lived, let's say the non-Jews were not too friendly toward Jews. And a group of peasants saw them 
and began to throw stones at them, try to stone them. A little unnerving experience, and the Kutzka Rebbe sort of started to get nervous. And his teacher turned to him and said, don't be nervous about this, nothing to worry about. These, these are phantoms. These are just phantoms. Uh, life paused, but a few minutes later, the Kutzker turned to his teacher and said, how do we know that we are not phantoms? And the Rebbe said to him, because sometimes we want to do tshuva. Sometimes we want to return and come back. That's a classic short Hasidic story. The story is really a setup line, a line of saying, if you've ever thought to yourself, am I a phantom? Do I have real con content? Am I somebody? Am I a real soul? Or am I just a floating phantom in the world? The answer is you'll know if you are, because you will want to return to something good. And that's a short, we're not going to do a short story this time. That's a short version. It's easy to tell what they're like. When you look at the Buber book, you'll see a number that are like that. They don't require much effort to analyze. They just mostly have to be responded to because they make a clear point. On the other hand, when you get more complex stories, and many of the Hasidic stories are more complex, especially the ones that appear in early Hasidic collections like Shifchei Abesh, these stories need to be paid attention to. And you have to, to walk through them step by step. So I'm going to start by actually reading you the story. And then we're going to go back and look at it. Take some patience. Remember, while I'm reading the story, I'm inviting you to respond inside. Okay, we can't talk about it, but you'll have memories, you'll have associations. Okay, Don't first analyze. We'll do that in a minute. First, just respond with memory, with association, with what you're thinking. Okay, so I'm going to read this story. It's called The Blind Angel. It takes about 10, 10, 12 minutes to read. So get yourself ready to listen to it. Let's begin. Rivka Parnes had recently returned to Brody from Vienna. In Vienna, she had taken her daughter to be examined by the most prestigious cardiologists of all of Europe. There is nothing we can do, the doctor had said. Your daughter hasn't much time. His words echoed in Rivka's ear like the death sentence that they were. Half a mile away, in the rear of a hardware store on a busy Lemberger street, a young man named Yechiel Tsurif was so absorbed in his silversmith's craft that he didn't notice his friend enter the room. Had he heard the news? The Tzaddik of Sasov, the source of the Rebbe, is coming to Brody for Hanukkah. Bouncing on his toes, he said, he will be with us to light the first candle tomorrow evening. All the Rebbe would say about why he was coming was that he was coming in order to redeem a soul. Within an hour of the Tzaddik's arrival, long lines formed. Men and women eager for a moment of his time, waiting impatiently were Torah scholars and the scarcely literate, landowners with fur-lined coats and beggars wearing patches upon patches, venerable Hasidim who had been to the Rebbe dozens of times before, and hopeful first-timers, unwavering devotees, and curious skeptics. All were seeking a word of advice, a message of reassurance, a blessing, or simply the chance to tell their grandchildren that they'd visited the Rebbe of Sasso. Among them was Rivka Parnes, wearing a black kerchief pulled down to her reddened eyes. When her turn finally came, Rivka stood silently while the Rebbe finished reading the petition that she had handed him. 
as the tzaddik can see from my note, my daughter Bluma is deathly ill. The doctors say there is no hope. There is always hope, the Rebbe said. Yes, of course. And if the Rebbe would please pray for my daughter and pray for her health, then surely, surely this wish will be realized. The Sassavar Tzaddik raised his palm and shook his head. God hears your entreaties, Rivka. I assure you, your Bluma will live and thrive and marry, and God willing, you will enjoy many years together with your many, many grandchildren. Rivka Parnay smiled for the first time in months. The weight lifted from her heart. She thanked the Rebbe and prepared to leave when the Tzaddik called her back. Oh, yes, there, there's one more thing. Just one thing. Your menorah. My menorah, Rivka was, Rivka was startled. She owned several. The silver menorah, the one you inherited from your father, the Rebbe said. Could she please bring it right away? A few hours later, the show was crowded with Hasidism, thrilled to be with the Rebbe on the first night of Hanukkah. They also gathered around to admire the famed Parnes Menorah, which stood in the Rebbe and the table right next to the Rebbe. Yechil Tzurif, the Sasabarebi called out. Come here, come here, you are an artisan. I'd like to hear your professional assessment of this menorah. Yechil slowly picked up the menorah, uneasy with the attention now focused on him. It's exquisite, he said. He ran his hand over the smooth lines and perfectly shaped knobs, appreciating the fine craftsmanship. The Rebbe's gaze fixed on Yechil. I'm pleased you're fond of this menorah. I'd like for you to be at my side when I light the first candle tonight. When the Rebbe later completed the Hanukkah blessings, the Hasidim roared, Amen! And with one voice sang the holiday melodies. When the singing quieted, the Rebbe turned to Yechil Tzurif, who'd been standing next to him the entire ceremony. No. So what do you think of this Hanukkah Menorah? As I said before, it's a true work of art. May the Rebbe enjoy it until he's 120 and may he greet the Messiah with it in his hand. No, no, said the Sassaber. This isn't my Menorah. It's yours. And I will have to tell you why. And you will all understand why this is truly a festive Hanukkah. He asked that Rivka Parnes come to the front, for she too must hear what he had to say. A hush descended as Ramoshalev Sassaber began his tale. Years ago, there lived in Brody a devout chosid by the name of Yechiel Tzurif. Your grandfather, Yechiel, as I'm sure you've heard, he was an outstanding silversmith, silversmith admired, admired throughout the region. His artistic skills, you inherited along with his name. Well, Yechiel Tzurif may have been a brilliant craftsman, but he was also a hopeless businessman and he barely eked out a living. The Rebbe continued. Now this Rebbe Yechiel was a devotee of Rabzusha and whenever possible would spend the holidays with his Rebbe. As is the custom of many Hasidic Rebbe's, Rebzusha distributed silver coins to his Hasidim when they set out to return to their families. And Yechiel Tzurif prized these silver mementos, these silver coins above all his other possessions. Mabzusha died, Yechiel Tzurif grew increasingly anxious about his treasured collection of coins, the ones he had received from the Rebbe. What if it were lost or stolen or inadvertently used to make an ordinary purchase? Yechiel alighted on an inspired solution. He would melt the coins, use the silver to cast them in order. As you can imagine, this became a labor of great love, fusing his artistic talents with his Hasidic devotion. 
The striking result stands before us, said the Sasaba Rebbe, right before us now on this table. Of course, affluent, rich Jews beset Yechiel Tzurif with generous offers to purchase his menorah. The most adamant of all was a man named Nachum Parnes, the richest Jew in Brody, who offered three times the highest bid. But Yechiel rejected all offers. The lamp was priceless, he said, not for sale. Years passed and Yechiel Tzurif's daughter reached the age of betrothal. An excellent match was arranged with a young man renowned for his piety and scholarship. There was, however, one hitch, money for a dowry. Yechiel would have to support the young man for full-time store studies for at least several years, a cost Yechiel Tzurif could certainly not afford. The poor man sought loans from friends and acquaintances, but the funds were insufficient to secure the marriage dowry. Bearing the awesome responsibility for his daughter's future, Yechiel Tzurif grew increasingly desperate until one night he knocked on the door of Nachum Parnes. He explained his situation. He needed a loan to pay for a wedding and to subsidize his potential son-in-law in his Torah studies. Alone? Alone, he wants, Nachum suppressed a chuckle. And what do you intend to provide for security? The chickpeas in your kitchen cabinet? Your whole estate, your hovel of a house? Let's forget this loan business. Who are we kidding? Chil Tzurif wanted to flee then and there, but understood that walking out empty-handed meant no marriage for his daughter. Reb Nachum, please, without your help, you want my help? Reb Nachum said, okay, let's talk business. You want something I have, money. You have something I want. Chil Tzurif's temples throb, his chest constricted. He dreaded what would surely follow. Yes, you have your silver manila. You're well aware I've been denying it for years. Yechiel Tzurif blanched. Why not be realistic for once, Nachum Parnes continued. It's your good fortune. I have such a craving for your manila. In exchange for it, I am prepared to pay the entire cost of your child's wedding. So do we have a deal? Yechiel bit his lip. The menorah was his link to his beloved Rebbe. It was the light of his home. Nachum Parnes pressed on. I appreciate what this menorah means to you, and I also want to partake in the great mitzvah of helping a young Jewish woman celebrate a wedding and build a home. So I'll add in the bargain. Not only will I pay for the entire wedding, I'll finance the full two years of future son-in-law studies, all for that menorah. He stretched out his hand to consummate the arrangement. An hour later, a heartbroken Yechiel Tzurif returned, holding a box in his hands. He loved his menorah, but he loved his daughter more. Nachum Parnes kept his end of the agreement. The wedding was a glittering celebration. A wealthy banker couldn't have done better. And the dowry too arrived just as promised. The Sassaver paused and sipped from a glass of water, but the Hasidim did not stir. Oh yes, there's more to the story, said the Rebbe. A few years after the wedding, Nachum Parnes died, and his soul arrived at the heavenly gates and tribunal for judgment. The lawyers for the defense presented his history of good deeds, his mitzvahs, his meticulous care in fulfilling the mitzvahs, his love of commandments, his record of philanthropy for the needy. But the prosecution presented a catalog no less compelling, filled with questionable business dealings and arrogant outbursts toward his employees. Back and forth, the trial swung, tilting one way and then the other. 
when the arguments were closed, the scale tipped decidedly just a bit against Nachum Parnes. His soul would be sent to the regions of the inferno. But just as his sentence was to be pronounced, a commotion erupted in the rear of the heavenly courtroom. A blind angel stumbled into the room, shouting for a halt to the proceedings. I am the angel Nahum Parnes created when he provided for Yechiel Tzuri's daughter's wedding. The angel staggered to the front of the tribunal, placed the weighty mitzvah of aiding a needy bride, put that on the scale, and let's see where matters stand. The scale was now tipped in the other direction. The soul of Nahum Parnes was directed to enter paradise. Alas, said the Rebbe, this would not be the end of his trials. According to Kabbalah, said the Rebbe, each time we perform a mitzvah, we create an angel who will be our advocate. And with our most important mitzvahs, we create the angel who will escort us into the next world. But the actions we commit in this world are rarely wholly good or wholly evil. And when we perform a good deed with flawed motivations, the corresponding angel is corrupted as well. Nachum Parnes performed a wonderful mitzvah of providing for a wedding, but his mitzvah was compromised. By demanding the menorah in exchange for his charity, he banished the light from Yechiel Tzuriv's home. He banished the light, and so the angel he created was also bereft of light. The angel was blind. And of all these years since that verdict, Nachum and Parnes and his blind angel have been stumbling around seeking the entrance to paradise, unable to find it. Two lost companions, they roam from place to place, hostages of the dark. The Rebbe paused. Then the Sassifer picked up the menorah and handed it to Yechiel. Take this. It is your patrimony. You have inherited it. Your grandfather made it. Redeem the soul of Nachum Parnes. Now that the mitzvah is made whole, sight will be restored to the blind angel and he will be able to find the gate of heaven. Yechiel's hands trembled as he accepted the menorah, but the Sassiver laughed and clapped his hands. Ah, to free a soul from captivity. Rising to his feet, he called his Hasidim to join him in a dance. That's the story. That's the story. Now we want to think about how do you read a story like this? I mean, it's good to appreciate it. I hope you all enjoyed it and I hope you had lots of good associations near with it. We've got to go back to the beginning of that story and look at it carefully. The story opens with Rivka Parnasus in, in Broda, from Broda, but she's in Vienna. And she's in Vienna because she has a daughter who's very ill. And she thinks maybe the cardiologists of Europe can find a cure. But they say there's nothing they can do. There's nothing they can do. She hasn't much, much time. And she hears this like a death sentence. A death sentence. We hear one thing. There she is. She is a woman who wants what seems impossible. She wants a daughter who's deathly ill to all of a sudden, miraculously, be cured. Ah, so she wants a miracle, maybe. Or maybe she wants magic. The magic that what can't ordinarily happen does happen. But Judaism isn't happy with, and Hasidism isn't happy with magic. Black magic is not a good thing. 
when I put magic in the title, I meant a different kind of magic, not black magic. And as for miracles, we're not allowed to trust in miracles. What is it that is in between magic and a miracle? That's what the story begins by saying to us. She needs something. She has a sick daughter. There is a puzzle. The puzzle in the story starts out with is, how will this need be dealt with? You know when the Hasidic stories all begin with some kind of unstated puzzle, something unknown. Somewhere in the universe there is an unknown connection, which if it's made properly is neither magic nor miracle, but the restoration of the wholeness of the way things are. You know this feeling. You enter a situation and something needs to happen, but you're not quite sure how it's going to happen. It doesn't look like it'll happen very easily. But you can't ask for a miracle and you can't ask for magic, but you can say somehow or other, I believe the world is built that there are unknown connections which will solve that puzzle. So from the very beginning of the story, we are starting to think about that. Where is that unknown connection that will solve the puzzle? The second person we learn about is a man named Yechiel Tsurif. He's a half a mile away. Right away, the words connection are hitting, singing in our ears. He's in the back of a hardware store. And he's about to discover that a great tzaddik is coming to visit him. The great tzaddik is coming to visit him. Now his name, if you know Chiyot Tzurif, Tzurif means a silver maker. The tzaddik of Sasov is coming for Hanukkah. Okay, and all he said is he's going to redeem a soul. So we're thinking this is a redemption story. But who's going to be redeemed and how? Why would a silver and a smith need to be redeemed? In any case, the daughter needs to be healed, but she doesn't need to be redeemed. But are we in the back of our minds, we think, ah, the question is, this is a story of redemption, and the Sasava Rabbi is the catalyst of redemption. The magic, quote to speak, the, the story behind the, the Hasidic story is there are unknown connections, and people that can make these own connect, unknown connections who know what there's what's going on that we don't see, they become catalysts for redemption because they put back together which was otherwise been separated. And then there's a description of the crowd that comes to the tzaddik. I love this description because they tell you, here standing in this Hasidic world, there are people who are in search of advice, in search of blessing, in search of reassurance, in search of some kind of redemptive connection in a world which is only part of the reality that they have and whose connections are only visible. That's the situation. You have to ask yourself, if you're a person who completely understands the world around you, if there's nothing hidden, if you know what everything is connected to, if all the truths are out in your table, you don't want to read a Hasidic story. It's about people who wake up in the morning and think, I'm missing something somewhere. Maybe I'm missing advice that I need to how to connect to something that I don't know about. Or maybe I'm missing a blessing to make something good even bigger than it was. Or maybe I just want reassurance that I can get through the day. Whatever it's going to be. Should have turned that off. There we go. Sorry. Hello? What happened here? You were Hello? here. Why can't I see you? I can't see any of you. Just a minute. I'll get there. I'll get back. I can still see you. <laughs> There we go, I see it. Now we're back in the game, okay, pardon me. So it's a world in which people need reassurance. 
they need attention paid. Something's missing, something is missing. And they're of all different kinds. It doesn't matter if they're rich or poor. The rich need reassurance the way the poor need reassurance. It doesn't matter whether they're beggars. It doesn't matter if they wear patches. It doesn't matter if they've been to the Rebbe a hundred times or if they're coming for the first time. It doesn't matter if they're believers. It doesn't matter if they're skeptics. They need advice. They need reassurance. They need blessing. They need a chance. It says to tell their grandchildren they visited the Rebbe. You have to be open to the possibility that whoever you are, whether you think you have life put together or you don't think you have life put together, that this story is going to create the way the Rebbe's presence created for them, some way of contacting a part of reality and a connection that you can't see, which the Rebbe can see. And when that connection is made, the puzzle is solved and life is better. Now, Rifa comes to see this Sassiver. Of course she does. What's the, otherwise, what kind of story is it? She has to come to see the Sassiver. She smiles after he reassures her. She said, there's always hope, says the rabbi. You think, oh boy, terrific. That's what we need, right? We need somebody to, this, this is a kind of like a, there's always hope. Yeah, of course, thanks a lot. I, I mean, my daughter's been told me that she's going to die according to the cardiologist. Don't tell me there's always hope. What do you mean there's always hope? The Rebbe is not a, a phony baloney. So when he says there's always hope, he means I know what to do. I know what to do. So you read the story and you say to yourself, okay, when he says that, that Bluma will live and thrive and marry, God willing, you'll enjoy many years together with your many grandchildren. She smiles because the weight has been lifted from her heart. It's a story about relationships in which truth of the truthfulness of the relationship helps the weight being lifted from the heart. And she's just about to live. And then there's the classic Hasidic move. So far, the story feels like, oh, yeah, terrific. There's a wonder-working rabbi. He knows lots of stuff we don't know. We go to him in different, desperate needs. Where, where's, the, where's the depth here? The depth is what occurs at the next moment. We know there's a puzzle. We know the, that there's a connection that will help us solve the puzzle. We know that we don't know what that connection is. We know there's somebody who does know what that connection is, that's the Rebbe. We know that the story is bigger than the story that we're telling. She's telling a story about herself having a daughter who's going to die. He seems to be telling a story about her getting better. Not deep enough. Something's missing. Something's missing. Sure enough. Oh, just one more thing. Just one more thing. Just when she thinks everything is wrapped up, just when she thinks this is a, you get it, he's a wonder worker. You show up and you ask for help and he goes, bibbity bobbity boom and it's all over. No, that's not how real Hasidus works. In these stories, the Rebbe knows something. He knows what's going on behind the scenes. Just one more thing, but he's not gonna give the story away right away. Your menorah, my menorah, we own several. He is, she's a rich woman. She has lots of, no, no, the silver menorah, the famous Sparanese menorah that you own. The one you got from your father, the rabbi says. Could she bring it right away? Now, the amazing thing is, she doesn't ask him why. She doesn't ask him what he's going to do with it. She just brings it. She just brings it. So the story sets up for us a moment of thinking to ourselves, what are relationships like that heal? Part of a healing relationship is sometimes you don't ask questions. Now think about what I just said, because you know this is true from your own life. Sometimes the only way to fix things is not to ask questions, but just to do what is demanded in that situation. Not to 
ask for full explanations, not to ask for everything to be laid out. Those are the relationships you really trust. Those are the relationships you really care about. Those are redemptive relationships. Those are the case when somebody says, just bring me that, you know it's going to be for good. And these are stories of such relationships and they remind you of such relationships and they remind you of what it was like when you just did something, knowing that you were going in the right direction, but unable to see exactly what it was, but you knew that somebody else could see. Hasidic stories are about people that exist in that kind of a world. All right, it's a little bit like a child just follows a parent's instruction. Parent says, come here, the child does it. Your parents know what's going on in the world. When you get older, your parents don't know anymore. So who knows? And yet we find such relationships, redemptive relationships, the ones that provide reassurance because he says, just one, one more, one more thing, bring me that menorah. We know as we listen to that, bring me one menorah, there's a story here, we wanna know what it is. Why did he want the menorah? That's interesting. A few hours later, of course, the shul is crowded with Hasidim. Everybody's there, right? We've seen a plea for help. We've seen a plea for reassurance. We've seen the menorah brought in. And what? The menorah is the missing piece of the puzzle. But we don't know how. Just a minute and a throw remark. But the menorah is the missing piece of the puzzle. How often the missing piece of a puzzle in our lives seems to be some small thing that we don't really understand. The menorah is not a small thing, but why do I have to bring it exactly? There's a missing piece of the puzzle. And these stories say, imagine that that's the case. He brings it. Okay. And somehow or other, we know that there are connections there. There are potential connections that have to be made actual. The world is not actually a chaos, even if it sometimes seems like that. But the answer to what moves us from chaos to a quieter, more orderly life, a safer life, while it may not be visible to us, we believe it's there somehow or other. I guess when you're a kid, that's how you go to the dentist. But whatever it might be, our story sets it up. There are possibilities. There are puzzles and there are possibilities. That's the magic behind the stories. What's the puzzle? What are the possibilities? We keep asking. Now, Yechiel Tzorif is then invited forward. We know we have two main players along with the Rebbe because they were introduced to us earlier. Now, both of them are once again stepping forward into our story. Yechiel is called up. He's also asked to do something, which is go clear or obvious meaning when he's asked to do it. Have a look at this menorah. Remember, he has no idea what the story of the menorah is. It belongs to Rivka Parnes. It's been in the Parnes family. Yechiel Tzurif has no idea where it came from. He comes forward. He looks at it. He's a little embarrassed because he's in front of everybody else, but he's looking around. He looks at its smooth lines, its perfectly shaped knobs. He sees the wonderful craftsmanship. And now the Rebbe's gaze fixed on Yechiel. The Rebbe looks at him. Now looking, the Rebbe looking at you, in this story reminds us how important looking is. If you've ever visited a Hasidic court, you know that the Rebbe will go through the process often of making a l'chaim. He lifts up the cup of liquor to make a l'chaim and he looks at you. And if you think it's not possible for a Rebbe standing in front of the room to look at each person individually when he chooses to, you haven't been there. 
Many times I was a Lubavitcher Hasidim. The Rebbe would find me out and look at me and make a luchar. Thousands of people in the room. The Rebbe has a gaze. The gaze says, now your puzzle is what we are discussing. Rebbe Surf doesn't have a puzzle. It's only puzzles. What's, what's my connection to this menorah? If the Rebbe is calling me up here to look at a menorah and asking my opinion, it's about something, but he has no idea. He doesn't have any sick children. He came to hear the Rebbe make the first baruch on the candle night number one of Hanukkah. He didn't show up because he had a problem. He had no problem. Now he has a problem. What the heck is this thing with a menorah? You have to unbalance people just a little bit in Hasidic story. People who think that everything is the way it is. Give me the menorah. And all of a sudden you think, what's that about? What's that about? So Hasidic rabbis and stories are people, and the story helps you to say, what will unbalance you just a little? Of course, having a daughter that everyone tells you is not going to survive, that's going to unbalance you. But being asked to evaluate a menorah in front of a whole crowd of people, it's unbalancing, but what's going on? How's that possible? I'm pleased you're fond of this menorah. I'd like you to be my side when I light the first candle. So you know, you feel this, this menorah is connected to you. And you might stand right over here next to me, right next to me. That begins to make us suspect that this menorah is connected to the Surf in some way or other. And that standing next to the Rebbe and the menorah at the same time will somehow or other make Yechiel the person who owns this menorah. But it's only a suspicion. It's a suspicion because that's how things get transferred in the usual world. He comes up, it's a menorah, and he pulls. But we don't know. We know we're missing something. And the name, what we're missing is what we used to call the backstory, right? Classic stories always have a backstory. You know you're missing something. What's the backstory? What is the backstory? So he starts telling us the backstory. In fact, Hasidic story is like life, stories within stories. All of us live lives that are stories within stories. You don't believe me, start telling the story of an event and you'll begin to see that what, that you're already telling? Oh wait, but to understand that, I have to tell you another story and another story. You can't tell the story of a job interview without telling three other stories. You're not gonna tell them that a person interviewing you. But you know what the other backstory is. There's always a backstory. Here's the backstory, part one, backstory bar one. Yechiel Tzorif has a grandfather. Yechiel Tzorif, no. What do you think of the Hanukkah lamp? He says, no. And he tells, you know, I'm going to tell you the backstory. I love this. No, 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 no. There isn't my menorah. It's yours. It's yours, he says. Now we know our guest was right. This menorah really belongs to Yechiel Tzorif. How is that possible? That's why he was standing there. How is it his menorah? I'll tell you why. And you will understand all what's true that why this is a festive Hanukkah, meaning why I came here to redeem a soul. Then he brings Rabbi Kaparnais to come to the front. She too must hear what he has to say. A hush descends on Rabbi Moshe Leib Sasavar, begins his tale. He begins his tale. That tale is a backstory. There's been a transfer of the menorah from Rabbi Kaparnais to the Rebbe and there's a story behind it, and that story tells you what's missing to complete the puzzle. Okay. We meet the grandfather, Yechiel Tzurif, the same name. So, of course, his story is about it. Once again, connections. We're always looking for connections. 
and there are two connections to the well-known Rebbe Zuzia. Okay, Rebbe Zuzia, people come to visit Rebbe Zuzia, who is a great Hasidic Rebbe, and he does an amazing thing. He's no longer with us. He distributes coins when they're going to go home. Hasidim come, they leave their families, they come to the Rebbe for holidays. They put a little stress on Hasidic marriages, but in stories, it's great. Most stories, everybody's on board with the, with the Hasid coming for, 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 the, for the holidays. When he goes to leave, Rabbi Zusha gives him a silver coin. Now we've got two things of silver, both of which have what? A function of holding, holding the spiritual meaning of an event or occasion. Yechil Tzorif's originally menorah, made out of, will come to, out of this, uh, which we now will learn what, what it, where it came from, the menorah and silver coins. So when you hear this story, you already realize, we don't know the connection between the silver coins and the menorah. We only know about the menorah. Now we're finding out about the silver coins. But Reb Zusha dies, and now Reb Yechil has a problem. His problem is he won't, can't go every year to the to, to Reb Zusha and get, get a coin. He's got only thing that connects him to the Reb who's no longer in the world of the living are these coins. You don't want to lose them. It makes you nervous. On my piano over there, are the grand are the, the candlesticks which my grandmother gave to me. Promises a Yerusha, the day I got smicha. You'll get it. It was my grandmother's grandmother's candlesticks. That means that when I give this to one of my kids, it'll be their grandmother, grandmother's grandmother's candle. We're talking about the middle of the 19th century. Objects hold reality, hold history, hold connections. They're important. You want to hang on to the Rebbe, hang on to the silver coins. Hang on to the silver coins. How do I do that exactly? That's what he says. What am I going to do? How am I going to hang on to these silver coins? The silver coins indicate the presence of blessing, which they got from the Rebbe. You look around and you look at things and say, "Where these are the these are the blessings I receive." Objects can be endowed with spiritual meaning and reality. That's step one. Objects can be endowed with spiritual meaning and reality. That means that material reality can be made spiritual. That's the key behind these stories lies a simple notion. You see the world, you think it's material, you think the spiritual world is somewhere else. Let me tell you, says this story, the spiritual world is present in the material world in which you're living. And there's some obvious cases you know about, like if you have these coins. That sets you up to think maybe it's a lot of other places too. I just don't have the backstory, that's all. But if I have the backstory, I would know why these coins have this kind of Ability to be material and spiritual at the same time. They indicate what was he seeking when he went to the Rebbe? Reassurance, protection, concern, transformation. All this is in the coins. The reassurances he got, the protection he feels it offers, and the transforming power of visiting the Rebbe. And now this menorah becomes what? The object of transformation. Behind the story lies a message. You think that things are static, you are wrong. 
That's why you're in trouble. You think it's a fixed world. No, it's a connected world. But in order to get from here to there in the connected world, you must be transformed. Just the way the Kutzker said, we know we're not phantoms because sometimes we want to do tshuva. Sometimes we want to be better people. And that tells us, you know what? Transformation is possible. He transforms it by transforming a physical object. He takes the coins, he melts them down and turns them into a beautiful manure. He turns them into a beautiful, there is the beautiful manure. Now, of course, the minute he finishes with it, everybody wants it. Everybody wants it. Is it valuable? Sure, it's valuable. Everybody rich looks around. They don't want to buy it necessarily because they want protection from it. They're not necessarily even buying it because they think it's spiritually valuable. They're they're buying it because it is beautiful and powerful and has a deep, some sense of deep presence. And he says to them, I know you want to buy it, but some things are not for sale because they're priceless. Message right in there. You see, you know, they're priceless. Think, oh, that's terrific. Just when you think now the story should end, right? There should be a story over on the side, the side story of how Nachum Tzurich is such a sadic that he knows that the manure is priceless. In connections, you have layers. We still have the story of Rivka and her daughter sitting there. We have the fact that Yechiel has just received this menorah. We're now getting the backstory. But the backstory is incomplete too. That's all you're going to tell me? That he was such a wonderful tzaddik of a person that when, he, that when he took the coins and melted them down, he wouldn't sell them? This transforms nothing. This is good. There's nothing wrong with it. It's a very nice thing to do. To refuse to sell your wonderful menorah. It's great. It shows that you know how priceless it is. But this is not a transformative event. This is a statement of goodness. Good. I mean, terrific. Yechilzer was a great tzaddik. What a tzaddik he was. That's not going to redeem anybody. We still have the puzzle. We still have the puzzle. Okay. Not a problem. It's priceless. He's a tzaddik. No problem. Yes, there's a problem. The problem is just the way Rivka Parnes has a problem in saving his daughter's, her daughter's life. Yechilzer has a problem with his daughter. His problem is he's got to marry her off. And in the old days, it was very simple. I'm going to marry off my daughter. This guy is going to be, I'm going to get this great Talmud Chochum and I'm going to get him to marry my daughter. I'm going to give him a lot of money to get started. I'm going to make a beautiful wedding. And then I'm going to pay for him to study for at least two years afterwards. Kest, it was called. He was a two years worth of Kest. And my daughter's going to have a great shidduch. He's going to have a great marriage. Problem, Michiel Tzoros no money. He has no money. He's not that he's starving, but he isn't a great businessman. That's the point. He isn't a great businessman. His daughter and her need over against the menorah and its great value. Now, strange as it sounds to moderns, so to speak, to people like us, there are many people who would really have a hard time even thinking about this. I'll do a lot to help my daughter, but I'm not selling the menorah that's my deepest spiritual connection to my Rebbe. I mean, there are things you do. You want me to sell my Cadillac? I'll sell my Cadillac. You want me to sell my, 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 uh, my shoes? I'll sell my shoes. You want me to sell my connection to my Rebbe? The deepest spiritual meaning? You want me to, of course, s- spiritual things trim my daughter so she won't have such a great shidduch. Don't have such a great shidduch. That's not, however, how the story's going to go. 
He's off searching for dowry funds. Maybe there's a practical way to solve this problem. And I love the interchange that then happens. Years pass, right? His daughter gets older. He's made the menorah. Now he has to marry her off, it says. He goes out looking for loans. He can't get enough money. Finally, he ends up at the house of Nachum Parnes. Not a bad man, but a complex man. He wants a loan, but Nachum Parnas is a businessman. I love his line. You want my help? So let's talk business. You want something I have, money? You have something I want. That is what the world is like, a series of transactions, right? A series of transactions. There's nothing wrong with transactions. You have something I want, a bicycle. You have something, have something you want, money, to make a deal. You give me your bicycle, I'll give you my money. Not a problem. What's the matter with transactions? Nothing. But the assumption here is, and we're in the back of our minds, that the story is about a deeper level that occurs that surrounds transactions. They have a meaning bigger than what you think they mean. They have a meaning bigger than what you think they mean. The way the object of the Menorah holds is a material thing, holding a spiritual thing. Transactions are a what? This worldly activity be undergirded by some kind of a, a back spiritual backstory. That he wants you to think about. What we know about Nachum Parnas from our story that I read to you is he's wealthy and he's willing to take advantage. He's willing to take advantage of this man's difficulty to get what he wants. It's not that he's forbidden from doing so. And in fact, he is in the business of putting a price on what is priceless. That's exactly what he's about to do. The first part of the story says it's priceless. He won't sell it. It's beyond price. And then the first thing that Nachman knows how to do is to say, you have a price. There is a price. I'll tell you what it's worth. It's worth I pay for the entire wedding. And just to show you that I'm not a bad guy, I'll pay for two years guests too. My, I'm a businessman. My, my, my goal in life is to make deals. I make A and B and C happy together. But I'm willing to take advantage in order to do that. That benefits me. I know how to put a price to him when it's priceless. It's what I would call the kind of false realism the Hasidic stories are meant to undermine. They're meant to undermine your sense that ordinary realistic appraisals of the world, what he says to are, are sensible. When the Ochum Parne says to, 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 to Yechil Tzuruf, be realistic for once. A Hasidic listener says to himself, that's the worst thing you can do in the world, be realistic. Be fair, be good, be just, be humble, be open, be committed, be caring, realistic, don't be. The underlying motif of a Hasidic story is only is that the real, only real, the only genuine realism is idealism. And when you get the right story, you will see what it is that you need to do. You have a built a very good life. You're not a bad man necessarily. But your wealth does tell us that you're willing to take advantage of this man right now. You're willing to put a price on what's priceless to him. So you have a false kind of realism. A false kind of realism. And you have mixed motives from the outset, therefore. It isn't flagged and big up, jumping up and down. But right away, we have a story about a complex world which presents puzzles that need to be resolved in which people are what complex and that have mixed motives. 
he does recognize the value of helping the blind. He says that. I appreciate what this menorah means to you, but I also want to partake in the great mitzvah of helping a young Jewish woman celebrate a wedding and build a home. I'll add to the bargain. He's not heartless. He knows that it's a big mitzvah to do this, but he wants the menorah. He wants both. There is a complexity to the choices that people have to make. And now there is a complexity to the story that Rabbi Chiyot Tzoref has to make. Here is his daughter on the one hand, and here is the priceless menorah on the other hand, and the daughter's priceless too. What do you do when it's a question of two priceless things? And I love the line, he loved his menorah, but he loved his daughter more. This is the key to life and families. You can love whatever you want, as long as you love your children more. You can love your religion, your spirituality, as much as you want. You can love all its symptoms, its spice box. You can love everything about it, as long as you love your children more. As long as you love your children more. And that's who he is. But there's a price to loving your children more. He gives them the menorah in return for the money. And, and of course, Nachum Parnes is honest. He pays off what he promised. He makes a terrific wedding and he supports the couple. Nikhil Tzorif gets what he wants. His daughter gets the wedding. But we discover the light of his, something of the light of his house is gone. Something of the light of the house is gone. He loves his daughter more than he loves his mother. He is liberated from what I like to call, Hasidic stories are about liberating, liberation from what I call spiritual materialism. Owning spiritual realities as if they were goods. Me measuring them off against each other. And being what? Caught up in the material aspect of spiritual values. If, if, if it turns out as the beginning of the story teaches us, material reality can be what? A base for spiritual reality. If they both are equally true, a person can get lost in the material connections that are so, you can get lost in the fact that you own the, the, the Kiddush cup that the Aptarov used to make Kiddush. And if you don't, you would say, he didn't get lost. He didn't get lost in the material reality of the menorah. The daughter came first, the daughter came first. Holy objects are very important, but love for people is more. That's how it is. Sounds simple-minded, but in the story, it's just built in. You hear it as a story. And somebody in the crowd listening, thinking, what a fool, he should have kept the menorah. Okay, that person doesn't get it. So where's the missing part of the, with the puzzle? To do that, we need to get that connected. And what is the back, this is the back, so we need the backstory to the backstory. There are layers of meaning. What's the backstory part two? All we've got now is, what about his grandfather? Well, it turns out there's another backstory. It's about Nachum Parnes after he dies. One backstory is about the menorah and the wedding. Now here's another backstory. Guess what? Nobody lives forever. He's not important. Not important. Pardes. He's going to die. And then after he dies, there he is in front of the heavenly court, and they're measuring his good deeds against his bad deeds. Of course he has good deeds. It's wonderful. But guess what? As he tells the story, what? It gets to the point. There are a lot of things he did that weren't so terrific. He screamed and hollered at his employees. He cheated sometimes. He did questionable business practices. 
Just the thing that all of us know what life is like. The income we don't report. The person we don't tell, if we get a better deal, we don't tell them. Everybody, life in these stories is complex. Everybody has a complex reality. Nachum Parnes is just one kind of complex reality. So he's told, guess what? He's being judged. And it's measured by his good deeds. And also by his evil deeds. The story is, you want to know about the meaning of your life. It's one thing. You want to know about the value of your life. You're dying. You ask yourself, am I dying with a sense of integrity? Research shows that people who die with a sense of integrity, whatever the theology is, can die more easily than people who don't feel they've led a good life. Was it a good, good life? Not a perfect life, but basically a good life. Meaning that the quality of life is not measured by how much money you make, what social status you have, how many times you visited the Rebbe, whether you're wearing patches or furs, whether you're a beginner or advanced, it's measured by quality, moral quality of your deeds. Sounds crazy, and I don't mean to simplify it, but that's it. The moral and religious quality of your deeds, the goodness of that, that's quality of life. That's how you measure quality of life. Not how, not how many vacations you took, or how fancy your clothes are, how you lived. Now there's a wonderful story. We've had symbols along. He says, Kabbalah says this, that he created, Kabbalah comes from originally from the Talmud. Angels are created by good deeds. We move to a world, to have a backstory, you need a back reality. The back reality here is that behind the world in which you and I live, there's also a world of spiritual forces. That's the world where you get judged. That's where the angels are. And you did something good, you created a good angel. And Rav Nachum is rescued by his good angel. The angel shows up and says, wait, wait. Don't you know he, he, he paid for the wedding for this bride? Terrific. But we know from the earlier story that he paid for it, but it was a compromised good deed. Like all of reality, there's a puzzle and it's missing a piece. And the piece is, how do I solve the, the compromise that I made? I took this guy's menorah. Rav Nachum Parnes did a partially good deed. He, and he's rescued by it, but he's not redeemed by it. To be rescued means I'm not what? I am not going to say my life was a waste. I'm not sent to hell. But it doesn't redeem me. How do I get redeemed? How do I get past the I get something, you get something? How do I get past the partiality and the, and the compromised natures of life that all of us lead? How do I get this complexity which from the beginning we've been trying, we've been connecting two people, Yechiel Tsarif and Rivka Parnes. We've been connecting their grandparents and parents through, through backstories. Now we've got, um, we're in a heavenly reality in which a blind angel comes to be a perfect symbol for what it is that, that our life is like. A lot of ways we're blind angels. We do some really wonderful things but they have a certain lack of completion and it bugs us. And it ought to bug us because when the time comes for judgment, it says, you're gonna walk into the perfect world. How are you gonna walk into a perfect world like that? There's an incomplete, it's not that you did anything wrong, but it's incomplete what you have done. The blind angel is not a bad angel. He's, a, he's an incomplete angel. He's missing sight. It isn't that Rabbi Nachum Parnes did something wrong. It's that he didn't do completely and wholly what he was supposed to do. It isn't that he killed somebody 
or that he beat up somebody or that he cheated somebody. He did a wonderful thing. He just did it for the wrong motivation. So it's incomplete. And this angel is incomplete. Hasidic stories, remember, it's a, puzzle. a puzzle means there are parts, but they're not completed together. Completing the puzzle is the metaphor for completing one's life. Completing the puzzle of who we are. Completing the puzzle of what a deed meant. Completing the puzzle of what our situation is about. The more you think about it, you'll know exactly what that story is telling you. While you're hearing the story, you're, you're, you know what uncompleted deeds are. Not evil deeds, but uncompleted ones. Redemption means recreating the connections, recreating the whole that should be there. The angel's blind. He can't get into heaven because heaven's a place of completion and wholeness. How do I get into the completion of wholeness? I'm looking for a place of peace, just some peace, and peace means wholeness. How do I get in there? You know, I banished the sight from Yechil Tzarev. I took the love away from his home. How do I restore light if I've taken it away? I didn't take it away by doing something wrong. I took it away by doing something being complete. We're all capable of bad deeds. But most of what most of us are doing is wrong. It's not bad deeds. It's incomplete deeds. We're not beating up people on the street. We're not stealing people out of one's wallets. We're not going around trying to ruin and hurt people. We're just incomplete. We're not there when we're needed. We only give half-heartedly. We stand off to the side. We turn away. It's not that we're incapable of very bad deeds. We are. But most of the time, that's not where our problems are. We're missing something. The backstory, we have one backstory, now layers of meaning, a second backstory. All of attempt to say the symbol of the blind angel captures this notion of what is incomplete, seeking completion. Redemption means recreating the, what, the wholeness that needs to be there. The menorah needs to go back to where it belongs. It belonged in the house of Yechiel Tzorif. It was removed from that place. It needs to go back there. But Yechiel Tzorif is dead. Yes, but his, his grandfather, his grandson is alive. If his grandson takes the menorah, the menorah goes back to where it belongs. And that's the missing piece of the puzzle. When the menorah goes back to where it belongs, there is a completed whole. All parts are where they belong. So behind these stories, it's not some kind of notion. When I say, what's between magic and miracle? An attempt to search for wholeness, a search for goodness that comes when things are whole and completed. I'm not asking for magic. I'm not asking for black magic. Bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. And I'm not asking for a miracle. I'm believing in these stories. I'm living in a world in which somewhere there is missing piece and if i can find that missing piece i can make it whole and if i can make it whole i can heal what's going on that's awesome uh rabbi do, you think, that? rabbi do you think um we, we can make, maybe allow uh, some time for maybe a question uh if you have the time i was told i had to finish it first so i did it in terms of one hour but i, I have time with somebody i have the time if somebody has a question do you have the time as a question? maybe just one question sure I'm happy to do that. Awesome. Maybe you want to just let people sit with it. One of the things I discovered is people here will have lots of, the, the, the more you listen, the more you actually were my partner in doing this, the more you'll find questions emerging over time. This was not a factual thing where you need, what'll happen is, I'll tell you what the, where the original is, you'll think about the story, you'll think about what was said, you'll think about your lives, then you'll have questions. 
I'm not the person. I'd be happy to hear about them, actually. I like it. If you, if you email me about these questions, I would love to hear about them. But I'm not the key to this. The key it's is 16 the hours. I don't know the backstory. You know all the backstories. You know where how to do that. These questions, in big Hasidic stories, there is information is not the question. So you're not looking for questions to actually clarify them. You're looking for people to take away questions and sit with them for a while. You know, now, if you said we're going to meet tomorrow for to discuss it, I, I'd be on your side. But if somebody wants to ask a question, I'm certainly open for it. Rav Blanchard, the, um, uh, the uh, art of Hasidic storytelling has really been destroyed because I think what it's become is kind of a 30-second story told at the beginning of a sermon or that has a, a final li line type of zing, you know, and... Um, uh, and and I would never tell a ten minute story because you know people have a thirty second uh, attention span, and but actually what the, the whole story is lost. The whole story is lost if it's not if it's not colored if it's not told in its full capacity. That's right. You, and not I, only that, right. capacity for the story to not just be a quick cheap moral lesson. I'm not called cheap, but a quick lesson as opposed to the psychological dimension, the internalization process. Right, the, the empathy, the the analysis, and I think that that what you've opened us up to here, more important than any lesson we take from this, which is important, is our capacity to sit with these stories, and to allow them to uh, broaden our own potential of self, of 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 self exploration. Um, I, you 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 know you said it better than I could have said. It. I'm so glad you you said it perfectly. That's exactly where it is. That's why I gave you the name of some books to look at. This story is the first story in a book called The Blind Angel, New Old Hasidic Tales by Reb Tovia Halberstam, who was the son of the Sansa Rav. So, so, so friends, we were given a gift today. We weren't just given a, a, a one story you could tell over. Maybe you got a story you could tell over. But we were given the gift to appreciate the art and the depth of how we can read, how, how we can read these stories. And that is something we can continue to pursue each day. And that can lead to healing and to moral growth and beyond. I like so, that. Um, so thank you so much for a plan shared for this. And thank you all for joining us. And uh, we look forward to more opportunities to learn together soon. But it was wonderful being with you. Thank you so much. Have a great day, everyone. Happy Purim if we don't see you. Happy Purim.